Well, have you come to church this morning with the expectation of meeting God? I hope so. But exactly what sort of God were you hoping to meet? Perhaps you hope to meet one who's, well, a little like you, who overlooks the odd slip-up or failure because, well, after all, nobody's perfect, Uh, whose standards are achievable because he knows how hard it is to be consistent. Or maybe you're hoping to meet a God who doesn't even notice some of those things you do or say or think because, well, he's busy, he's preoccupied, he's like all of us, a bit like a distracted parent whose kids get away with everything. Or maybe you're here this morning hoping to meet a God who's, well, pretty pleased that you're here at all. After all, life's busy and, you know, he understands that God's just one of your many commitments and if you're honest, you reckon you're doing pretty well and certainly doing a lot better than you-know-who over there. After all, where would the church budget be without your generous giving or your home group without your leadership or the quality of coffee without your barista skills? or the dress standards of church without your fine collection of designer clothes? Where would God be without you? Are you hoping to meet God this morning? Well, I've got some news for you. And it's both good news and bad news. You are going to meet God this morning. It's bad news because he's nothing like you. He doesn't need you. There's nothing he lacks that you can supply him and he sees everything, every motivation, every secret action and he won't overlook your sin, he can't overlook your sin and he's coming to judge and there's no one who can help you. But it's also good news because he's come to speak to us, to warn us and to tell us what he does want. Well, Psalm 50, it begins with the royal herald introducing the king. The same way that when royalty had arrives at a function like a ball or something like that and the herald stands at the front of the doors and introduces them for everyone to hear. For example, here are the titles for the Queen Mother who died a few years ago, but here's her titles, how she was introduced. Most High, Most Mighty and Most Excellent, Princess Elizabeth, Queen Dowager and Queen Mother, Lady of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Lady of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Lady of the Imperial Order of the Crown of India, Grand Master and Dame Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, upon whom had been conferred the Royal Victorian Chain, Dame Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Dame Grand Cross of the Most Venerable Order of the Hospital of St John, Relic of His Majesty King George VI and Mother of Her Most Excellent Majesty Elizabeth II. Now, I don't know what most of that means, but I do know it means someone pretty impressive is coming. Well, listen to how this king is introduced. Verse 1. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, 
speaks and summons the earth, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God himself is judge. The mighty one, God the Lord. He's the king, the God above all gods and not just over his people, He's king over everything and he's calling it all together to gather heavens above, earth below and he's coming to sit in judgement. The royal announcer declares and says marvel in his qualities. Verse 2, he's perfect in beauty. He's faultless and attractive in his morals and personality. He shines like the sun. He brings life. He shines purity into every part of his creation. And he's fire, cleansing, refining, destroying, powerful, insatiable. And he's a tempest, a wild, uncontrollable storm that uproots trees and flattens houses Just like the wind, you can't see him but you can see his effects. But don't get too comfortable thinking he's come to judge the earth, everyone he's assembled, the rest, those out there, no, no. First of all, he's come to judge his people. To those, verse 5, he's consecrated, he's set apart as holy, those he's made a covenant with, and those he expects a response from, that's who he's come to judge. His creation has been summoned simply to watch, to witness and testify. Verse 6, to declare his suitability to judge. And verse 6 finishes, Selah. Can you see that word there? No one really knows what it means. I don't ever hear too many people reading Psalms out aloud and they actually say the seller. No one best guess for what it means. It's something like musical pause. Or in a modern translation, they might say lead guitar solo. It's designed to be somewhere in the music for you to stop and think about the words you've just sung. And that certainly fits here, doesn't it? Stop and think. The mighty one, God, the Lord, is introduced and he's summoned his whole creation and he's about to speak, so get ready. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. I am God, your God. But when he speaks in verse 8, his first words, well, they're surprising especially after the big build-up about judgement. 
Verse 8, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. So, the people are offering plenty of sacrifices, so, so what's the problem? What is it that God is judging? He's not rebuking them for the number of sacrifices, the quantity is fine, it's the quality he has a problem with. Quantity's fine, it's the quality. He wants relationship before religion. He wants relationship before religion. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. I have no need of a bull from your store or goats from your pens. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So what's the attitude that those comments are answering? The problem with the sacrifices was that the people thought they were bringing something valuable to God. They thought somehow God needed their offerings. They had an inflated view of themselves and an inferior view of God. Their focus was on what they contributed rather than on the God they were contributing to. Instead, God says, he made everything. He rules everything. He owns everything. He needs nothing. Who are you to think you've got something God needs? Who are you to think there's anything you can do that will make you acceptable to him? He's speaking to the religious He's speaking to those who focus on the performance of certain duties and who trust those duties uh, as works that make them acceptable. God is saying, I don't need what you're offering. But thankfully he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 14 and 15 to tell us what he does want. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfil your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. Now, on the surface it might seem like he's just saying offer more sacrifices. But notice that they're thank offerings and I think that's the significance. God wants thankfulness. You see, it's all about your motivation as Maddie's kids talk did really well. It's about your motivation. Whatever it is you offer to God, do it in grateful response to what he's done for you. That's the sort of sacrifice God wants. He's interested in the quality of the sacrifice, not the quantity. He wants thankfulness, but that's not all. He wants you to fulfil your vows. I think what this is saying is God wants you to do what you say. Do what you say you're going to do. Obey me. Follow through on your good intentions. Be consistent. Walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. That's the best way you can show your thankfulness. Thankfulness, obedience and thirdly verse 15, he wants you to call on him in the day of trouble. Don't just soldier on in your own strength when things go bad. Reach out to God. He loves it when we do that. 
He's like the father whose daughter offers to help wash the car. Dad doesn't need your help. But it's nice that she wants to help. And Dad loves it when she says, Dad, I can't reach that spot. Can you lift me up so I can wash that bit? God loves an attitude of dependence and humility from his children, thankfulness and obedience. God can work with attitudes like that. He can work with people who come to him with open hands and empty pockets. He can't work with people who come to him with stiff necks and a list of achievements. He wants relationship before ritual. Thankfulness, obedience, dependence. And when we come to God bearing those gifts instead of sacrifices or something else, verse 16, God promises deliverance. He promises to answer our prayers. And then he says, we honour him. We will give him his dues when he answers our prayers. Recognise him for what he is and what we don't have and are not. That's the first half of the psalm. It's his word of warning for the religious. Relationship, not religion. Thankfulness, obedience, dependence rather than ritual. Well, second half of the psalm, from verse 16 to 22, God turns his attention to another type of person. First type of person thought that actions mattered. The second type of person thinks words don't matter. In some ways, it's, it's more of the same because this person looks religious, just like the first person, first type of person. Well, they look religious at least some of the time. Verse 16, they can recite God's laws, they can take his covenant on their lips, they, can, they, they know their memory verses, they can sing all the hymns without opening their hymn books. But when they do, all God hears is blah, blah, blah. Because they don't mean what they say. They don't believe the words they're uttering. Verse 17, God says, you hate my instruction. You cast my words behind you. So how does God know that? How does God know that the words they say they don't actually believe? Where's the evidence? Well, verse 18, they're hypocrites. They don't do what they're saying with their mouths. Their words say they're loving God, but their actions are saying something different. Verse 18, when you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. They recite the commandment, do not steal, on Saturday, but then on Sunday they steal. They say the words, do not commit adultery on Saturday, but then they join in with and approve of those who break their marriage vows on Sunday. On Saturday they recite the commandment, do not lie, but then they deceive. They say the words, do not murder, but then they harm their brother with their insults. And God sees it all. God sees it all. Can you imagine what it must be like for God? Seeing his people, speaking his laws and singing his praises and then 
to see those same lips deceiving and slandering and hurting. Hypocrisy doesn't seem so obvious to us, but but when we see it, we hate it. It's not so obvious to us because, well, we're forgetful and we're inconsistent and we don't actually see through walls or hear behind closed doors. But God never forgets. God always sees. He never changes. He's always faithful. And he sees our hypocrisy and it's contrary to his character. It's an insult to him. James 3 we read about the danger of our tongues. James 3.8, no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. You can just hear James's frustration, can't you, as he writes it. But imagine God's frustration. James 1.26 warns us, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Words render our actions worthless in God's sight. Make sure... Like, Surely we know that with our heads. We know what God's like. Why would we do that? Why would I do it? Well, the psalmist says in verse 21, because these people think God won't do anything. These things you've done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. All the false words, the destructive words and God speaks no words in response. And so people think God's not interested and they can just go on doing as they please. They think that God is like them. They think that he's morally ambivalent, inconsistent, limited sight or knowledge but he's not like them. He will rebuke. His justice demands it. You know, some people think the opposite of love is hate. But it's not. There's a good case for the opposite of love being indifference. God's not indifferent. He sees and he cares and so he's going to act. His love means he will act. He may seem indifferent to you, but he's not. He's not like us, who don't care enough to confront sin. Verse 21, he says, I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Verse 22, consider this, you who forget God, I will, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. Consider, or I will tear you to pieces. The reality is, We are very sinful and God is right to be very angry with us. Even if at the moment it doesn't look like he's angry. At the moment he's patient. 
At the moment he's long-suffering. At the moment he's not bringing the judgement this world deserves. 2 Peter 3.9 says it's not because God is slow in keeping his promise. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why people think God is just like them, because he's patient. Romans chapter 2 verse 3 questions us, do you think you will escape God's judgement or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Yes, God is angry at your sin, but he's kind enough to be patient and in his mercy he's kind enough to warn us And that's what Psalm 50 is. Psalm 50 is God's kindness to warn us what will happen if we don't remember him, if we don't repent. He says, consider this or I'll tear you to pieces. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't have given us Psalm 50, he'd just wipe us out. What God wants, the hypocrite, to do is seen in verse 23 and if you're looking at the structure of it verse 23 matches up with verse 14 and 15, both of them are the commands to the two types of people and so to the hypocrite it's almost the same as verse 14 and 15 really he says, he who sacrifices thank offerings honours me and he prepares the way or other translations have he orders his way so that I may show him the salvation of God. In other words, God wants thankfulness that honours him and he wants an obedient way of life, an ordered way of life, a prepared, a straight path. He wants us to to, to walk the, the, the way of obedience. That expresses, that thankfulness and, and obedience expresses faith in God, that results in God's salvation. Well, that's the psalm. Uh, you've met God this morning and he's not like you. He sees, he knows, he's coming to judge. He doesn't need your sacrifices or your gifts. He wants your thankfulness, your obedience, your dependence. Now, if this was a sermon that was preached in a Jewish synagogue one Sabbath, that may be where the sermon stopped. And the Jews would walk out of the synagogue reminded about how holy and righteous God is and how sinful and perverse they are and how he doesn't need their sacrifices but wants their thanks and obedience and dependence and they would walk out with a a new determination that would last until Sunday morning when they messed up again. And just perhaps at that point where they failed yet again, they may ask themselves, how is it that the holy judge of all the earth, how is it that the devouring fire can just forgive my sin? It can't be sacrifices. For a start, there's no temple, but also he says he doesn't need my sacrifices. How can God be just and the one who justifies the ungodly? There has to be another way. 
We need a better sacrifice. We need one that will deal with my sin once and for all. I wonder if the Jew ever leaves the synagogue thinking those things. And of course we can't bring a sacrifice to satisfy the perfect judge because we've got nothing God needs. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We've got nothing he wants. We're basically hypocrites at heart. What's the solution? Well, it will take God himself providing the sacrifice that will satisfy him. Of course, that's what he did. Those of us who are Christian know that he provided the satisfactory sacrifice in his own son, in Jesus. In the words of Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen, says Psalm 50. But Romans 3 continues, Just and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I hope you notice some connections with Psalm 50. Notice it's God who offers the sacrifice. There's nothing we have that he needs. It's got to come from God. And you notice it comes from his patience. His justice demands a sacrifice and he puts us right with him. He saves us in the language of Psalm 50. And we see all of these psalms in Psalm 50. And so what that means is we're we're much better off than the Jews who read this psalm. Because of Jesus we have so much more confidence to come to this holy judge with humble, trusting, dependent gratitude. Not because we're more confident of our own ability, but because we know more clearly how great a debt we've been forgiven from. And so we can come in the words of Hebrews 10, which encourages us uh, to come with this attitude. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now that's the way to meet your God this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, with confident hope, uh, with hearts that have been sprinkled clean, 
consciences that have been genuinely cleansed of sin, not because of our work but the work of Jesus, uh, the perfect work of Jesus in our place. Uh, We thank you that you are just. Uh, We thank you that we can't measure up, we can't add anything, we can't give you anything that you need. You are self-sufficient. We thank you for how our New Testament fills out this psalm that we can have confident hope through the Lord Jesus. We pray that we might live out in gratitude to him thankfulness and obedience for his sake and his glory. Amen.